0: War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. In today's episode, I'm joined by guest co-host Jared Morningstar, who you might remember from last year's episode on Metamodernism. Jared recently reached out to discuss the infamously difficult philosophical and theological writings of D.G. Leahy. This inquiry sparked today's conversation with Lisa McCullough, friend of the podcast, premier expert of Leahy's writing, and co-editor with Elliot Wolfson of the edited collection, DG Leahy and the Thinking Now Occurring from SUNY Press. In this episode, we discuss Leahy, his central notion of the thinking now occurring, and his attempt to embody a radically new mode of thinking in the wake of modernity. We hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: My name is Lisa McCullough and I teach philosophy
2: at California State University, Dominguez Hills, which is in the Los Angeles area, and uh, I've been teaching there for about 10 years now. Um, I had several teaching positions before that, um, and I've published a few books, edited a few books, and one of the main figures I work on is Simone Bay. And, um we're just coming out with a um the first uh, reference work on Simon Weil Vey called "The Bloomsbury Handbook of Simon Weil. Vey. That should be coming out in about a year. Um, and uh, I've done a lot of work on Thomas Altizer's Theology and uh, also David Leahy.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, before we 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 dig into the the wonderful world of uh, Leahy, I thought I would give an opportunity. Uh, Jared is, is joining us and is not one of our, our regular uh, guests. So Jared, uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself and uh, to our audience and where they might be able to find some of your work.
1: Great. Yeah. Uh so I'm I'm back and I'm not talking about metamodernism this time uh or Islam, something totally different uh, than my typical wheelhouse from what people might know me uh through uh, on this podcast. But uh yeah, I, I work for the the Center for Process Studies, uh, a research and sort of nonprofit org in this lineage of process philosophy and, and theology, going back to to Whitehead. But certainly also have interests in these more radical theology. Traditions. And uh I think it was last year, uh, sometime, sometime early in 2023, that Leahy really uh, popped up on my radar uh, through Altizer. And uh yes, I uh, listened to this wonderful three-part uh interview series that's uh on YouTube um, and definitely got me really interested, got me really hooked. Uh got a copy of uh, Novitas Mundi. Uh I tried to read it. I uh, have not yet succeeded, but uh, thankfully we have this lovely uh, new anthology uh, that uh, Lisa co-edited uh, that uh, has definitely been making things more uh, intelligible and uh, accessible as I've been kind of poking poking through it. So hopefully, uh, this uh, this conversation today can also serve a, a similar purpose.
0: It's great, and it it, it it's great too that you just. Entire interview was was actually sparked by some questions that you sent to to Matt, the usual co-host. So I think that's uh, very fortuitous. Uh, so Lisa, I I know you first uh, and, and foremost through connections with Altizer and at various conferences and 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 different places where he was presenting and you would be around and and your excellent work on his thought. Uh, but as as we have suggested, uh, we are here to look at somebody else. We're here to look at uh, D.G. Uh, Leahy. and so I wonder if you could talk about how you first got introduced to Leahy's work, and uh, and and what what was enticing about that work, what what brought you into uh, into taking him uh, seriously as a thinker.
2: Well, I was introduced to him personally through Altizer, and. Very early on, Leahy and I developed a personal friendship that uh, continued for about 17 years before his death, and I had that opportunity to have one-on-one conversations with him many, many times, dozens of times, and I would say I was... um, not working very hard at understanding his thought for a long time, I would casually pick up his books. When he published a new book, he would give me a copy and I would pick them up and try to read them and I couldn't read them. I just couldn't read them. And um, I tried for seven years, uh, casually again, picking them up, I don't know, every few weeks or months. um, Maybe I'd see him have a long conversation, pick up his book, not be able to read it. (laughs) And then one day I picked up, I believe it was Novitas Mundi, and I found that I could read it. And uh, I don't know what that is, that process of acclimation through both conversation and through um, trying and trying again until some of the sense comes through. Um, I do believe that every real brain, every real mind is creative, and uh, it has creative capacities that if you just sort of passively call on them, <laughs> they can get to work on something like this. Any any difficult thinker, um, so that you learn how to parse, you learn how to interpret, you, you begin to grasp those um, recurrent Terms and what they mean through just repeated exposure. And all of that was working together. Um, And then I became an avid reader and read and reread. I also attended a summer seminar on his ethics that became uh, Beyond Sovereignty, his last, fourth, and final book published. Um, And um, I mean, if you count, if you don't count the book on the cube, which is kind of a very uh, distinct. Separate kind of thing. Um, he he published four uh, kind of real books, um, and uh, I I began to really read them again and again. Uh, and it's it's really been uh, not so much uh, taking on that mountain with fierce determination, but more just like taking a step and then taking a few more steps until. Bit by bit, I was able to 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 make the journey.
0: <laughs> we obviously we're going to spend some time digging into the the context of his work and the actual what does he actually argue what what does he 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 do in his famously difficult texts. But before we get into that context, I wonder if you could give a little bit of of kind of background and biography. Who is uh, David Leahy? Where does he fit within the kind of intellectual trajectory of the twentieth century?
2: He was born in 1937 in Brooklyn, and he was basically a New Yorker all his life. And uh, he was educated at Jesuit schools um, in the classics. Um, and he was a master of debate. Uh, every seems that every debating contest that he entered, uh, he was a uh, you know in these debating clubs, and uh, his his team would always win. <laughs> And he went to the national level. Um, So he was really an excellent uh, uh, rhetorician, um, uh, logician, debater, live debater. um, And he continued to study the classics. Um, He never uh, obtained a master's degree or a PhD. Uh, He is, in that sense, self educated. Um, But he was tenured at New York University at a relatively young age, I believe it was like 30-ish, early 30s, um, without without those degrees, uh, because he was just such a powerful teacher. He won the most prestigious teaching prize at NYU. um, And um, his, his work and his teaching spoke for itself. Um, but he um, he left NYU at a certain point and basically became an independent author for many years. He, for a while, worked outside in um, a kind of business, you might say. I um, don't know much about that era, but it was at least a dozen years. Um, well, he continued to write and think and publish. Um, and then he died in 2014. Um, and, uh, so that was age seventy-seven, I believe.
1: Great, that's very helpful. Uh, wonderful that uh, he was able to, yeah, make uh, make such uh, impact and uh, be such a poignant uh, academic and intellectual without uh, some of those traditional uh, qualifications. Very inspiring. Um, yeah. So to to situate a little further. Um, some of the uh, sort of uh, camps that I uh, associate Leahy with is certainly this uh, uh, radical theology and, and sort of death of God uh, uh, lineage in uh, 20th century theology. But then he's also a, a, a Catholic thinker. Uh, so could you explain a little bit uh, both his uh, sort of Catholicity and how that shows up in, in his thinking and how he kind of situates in this uh, yeah, death of God lineage?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, um, because um, it's not a natural question. Um, I mean, it's it's not natural uh, or obvious um, that these would fit together, because most of the death of God thinkers are Protestant. <laughs> um, so Tom Altizer would always call him a radical Catholic, which I think is fair enough. Uh, you can even go so far as to say that he's an apocalyptic Catholic. <laughs> and um, what that means, though, it's... Um, Something one has to be careful with, uh, because apocalypticism as a word, it's powerful, and it means all kinds of things to different uh w- language worlds and um it's it's a little bit technical in both altizer and Leahy the notion of apocalypticism. Um, but um, as a radical Catholic, he believed yes, he ex- he is a death of God thinker. But it's it's not a, a Protestant or Altizerian, uh notion of the death of God, which basically continues the whole Nietzsche Hegel line, or reversing that the Hegel Nietzsche line um, that continues in the 20th century in a lot of different figures. Rather, Lehi he doesn't he's above that fray. He doesn't deal much with that line per se, but he takes up Altheiser's understanding that history is coming to an end, uh, which is the Hegelian kind of line. Um, and And what he offers is the beginning. <laughs> and in the thinking now occurring, which is the way he characterizes this new thinking, there is an absolute beginning that indeed brings modernity to an end. But his problem with Altizer, or the, the criticism he levels against Altizer, is that in Altizer's continuing to talk about the, the end and the solitude of the end, and the end of God, and that God is dead, <laughs> you can't really properly bring all of that to an end if you don't have a beginning. <laughs> and uh, so, what Leahy offers, it's really like bookends. Uh, you know, Altizer's the thinker of the death of God and the end of history. Leahy is the thinker of the beginning of an absolutely new world and an absolutely new thinking. Um, and how to understand that is the challenge. Uh, because it's so absolute, you'll notice on every page of Leahy's work, there's this absolute this and absolute that. Hopefully we can unpack some of these points as we converse. It's a lot though.
0: (laughs) It is a lot. And you invoke this this sort of master word, I think, of, of, of Leahy, which is, is that, that phrase, the thinking now occurring, which I think often one of the difficulties with entering Leahy's work when you're unfamiliar with him is that he'll have these clauses that sort of function as a noun, uh, even though it's like a whole clause and it, and it's often, it's, it's simply grammatical getting used to realizing like what these things are. And, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea. There's, um, Uh, A a quote that, I believe it's a Bergson quote, it's sometimes attributed to Heidegger, uh, that a true philosopher has only one idea and that they spend their life working out that one idea. And it really seems that the thinking now occurring is that one idea for for Leahy. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what exactly he means by the thinking now occurring.
2: Yeah, and that's an absolutely key question. The first thing to um, note is that The thinking now occurring is not David Leahy's thinking. The thinking now occurring is a thinking that David Leahy is doing, but anybody can be doing and should be doing. (laughs) So um, the way to think of this is Leahy as a thinker achieves the founding declaration of the TNO, thinking now occurring, but the thinking now occurring is not quote Leahy's thinking Every thinking is objectively foundational and pertinent. In Leahy's founding declaration of the thinking now occurring, he distinguishes between the new thinking, as he calls it, and the thinking of the past or inessential thinking. And the full phrase of the thinking now occurring is the thinking now occurring for the first time in history. So when you hear the thinking now occurring or TNO, You need to understand the rest of that phrase, because it's not saying, oh, I'm doing some new thinking, because people have been doing new thinking since time immemorial, right? Every new era, every new uh, thinker brings a new thinking. That's not what's being said here. And this is essential to understand the thinking now occurring for the first time in history is an essentially new thinking. And to understand what that means is of the essence, if, if you don't get what that's saying and, and how to characterize it. Um, so the thinking now occurring understands the essentially new thinking as a present actuality that becomes manifest phenomenologically. It shows itself to be the case. Whereas the thinking of the past or inessential thinking has not arrived at this induction, uh, but is in one sense or another on the way, uh, therefore not unimportant and not to be antagonized. No thinking is to be antagonized, but rather worked with creatively. Um, And basically, if a manner of thinking is not adequate, then let it be addressed by adequate thinking. (laughs) So no thinking is... uh, um, you know, dismissed uh, or disregarded or seen as um, wrong. Um, it, it, thinking is continually trying to find the truth in any form of thinking. Um, and to attack or rebuke thinking is an uncreative response to, within the context of a polyontological environment. Right? Um, now, what is the thinking now occurring um uh, what is this one idea? How did you phrase that? This one... Uh, uh,
0: his, his, his master idea or something?
2: Yeah, <laughs> it has only one idea. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, so it's an entirely new ontology that changes the foundation of every domain of thought. Philosophy, theology, science, mathematics, logic. Um, to be not only capable of change, but to be constituted by change. What is new about this ontology is its essential newness. Uh, Essential newness of mind constitutes essential newness of the world, and essential newness of the world constitutes essential newness of mind. These are the terms, novitas mundi, the newness of the world, and novitas mentis, newness of mind or consciousness. So it's essentially new thinking as a, as a category, if you will, as a, as a phenomenon, effects the final liberation of thought and language to create its categories de novo. The infacility of fixed, canned categories, ensconced in metal and linguistic habituation falls away. And thinking is liberated to be as mercurial as the phenomenology of the things themselves and vice versa.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, you know, in Hamlet, uh, he, he, he speaks these great words. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio and are dreamt of in your philosophy. Well, now that's been true for a long time. So now what we're trying to do is really go beyond philosophy into um, a perception of the world that um, is, is equal to the world, adequate to the world. And actually it is the world itself, <laughs> the newness of mind that is the world itself and the world itself qua newness of mind inextricably.
0: Could, could I actually in, yes. in intervene real quick and just ask yes. a clarifying question? Sure. So Leahy has a tendency to 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 speak in that sort of Heideggerian middle voice, I think, in a lot of times. And so you mentioned earlier, you said the thinking now occurring shows itself to be the case. And because of the, that ambiguity of the middle voice, one question I have is, is shows itself to whom or or to what right because it's 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 not the subject i, I suspect uh, you know correct me if i'm wrong uh, in the sense that he seems to be moving away from uh the the sort of modernity subject centered approach right he's he's not a kantian uh it also it doesn't seem to be that the thinking now occurring shows itself just to Leahy, right you suggested that this is it shouldn't be identified with his own thinking and so i wonder if you could if you could clarify to whom or to what, whether it's sort of culture or whatever it might be, to, to, to who does the thinking now occurring show itself?
2: Yeah, and that's another really important question. Thinking, perceiving, dreaming, feeling, intuiting, creating um, is all manna from heaven. <laughs> how, how, are, how are we thinking about thinking here? When when you when uh, Leahy uses the phrase "thinking now occurring," he means all of these things. It's maybe better to think of perceiving the perceiving now occurring, the uh, creating now occurring, and whose is this? Well, that that's a a tricky question for any thinking. Um, who dares to say that this thinking that I am experiencing, including the sensations of my own body, is in any proper sense mine? Is not everything I consider me phenomenologically given to me as anotherness? I adopt it and I call it mine. But can I point to one nanoparticle of my material existence or one iota of my consciousness that I created ex nihilo? For example, when you think the operation 2 plus 2 equals 4 and your mind perceives the logical truth of that, does the empowerment of that perceiving belong to you? No, it is mana. I received this universe that is my body. Others receive theirs co-creatively. So if thinking is manna from heaven, a gift not created by me, but given to me, absolutely received by me, it is a sin to appropriate thinking, feeling, perceiving, dreaming as one's own, as belonging to one's self and in its control. And yet thinking is responsible for the world, it is actualizing. The universe is, it is actually creating, creating now in real time, in all actuality. So absolute otherness, a term I've already invoked, um, means the universe you receive, perceive, same thing, is created in the seeing, in the receiving. The receiving of a gift here and now—it is not mine, but I create it in the reception. Actually, we should just say thinking creates it in the reception, and thinking is responsible for what it is given, what it is receiving. And uh, you know, maybe here it helps to think um, in this question of what being given, givenness of of. Um, of a reception of something, um, you know, Nietzsche argues that there's no such thing as a fact, right? A fact would be a kind of given. The thinking now occurring argues that we create facts in the reception. Um, Facts are demonstrative acts, and that's even so in science. So thinking is perceiving the full fact, receiving the absolute particularity of the body, and it, it escapes, um, in this uh, reception, it escapes 100% the abstracting that characterizes thinking throughout modernity, beginning with Descartes. And we can talk more about that directly if, if you want to.
1: Yeah, let's, uh, let's definitely get into that so uh one of the uh, sort of key turns in in the thinking now occurring is getting beyond this uh yeah referentiality of the self uh uh self-contained uh subjectivity certainly in in the cartesian sense uh and uh yeah i i, I was uh thinking as uh you were uh explicating how yeah this isn't just leahy's thought uh yeah, of course it couldn't be because we've gone beyond this uh sort of uh uh, mode of of the the self-referentiality of of the the subject. Uh, so yeah, could you talk a little bit about uh, yeah how how the how this thinking uh, moves beyond self? Uh, what uh, uh, sort of it has in place to to do some of that that work that uh, historically the the subject uh, was was doing. Uh, and yeah, how how that also relates with this uh, absolute beginning, the beginning of the beginning, that is uh, really for the first time going beyond modernity.
2: Good question again, and I think we we seek we seek to get beyond the self refer- referentiality of the self, but I don't think that we've succeeded, in, and actually. Um, That has been this uh, persistent problem all through modernity. So, yes, there's no subjectivity in the thinking now occurring, only absolute objectivity. Uh, But uh, let's remember that we must be constantly mindful. This is not the alienated Hegelian notion of objectivity, because, and we know that because uh, Hegelian objectivity coincides and correlates with an absolute subjectivity. (laughs) And in the thinking now occurring, objectivity is the full fact of the things themselves actually existing and received as manna from heaven. So you don't have this dichotomy. It's transcendent. And that's hard to think. I mean, that's at the core of why this is hard to think. Um, But let's go back to this question why absolute objectivity? Descartes' lumen naturale, the natural ground of reason that he invokes, um, already implicitly presupposes the rift of secularization. His I think, cogito, excludes God. But who is to say that that is legitimate? If there is a creator, the creator created the foundation of his thinking as well. Who is Descartes to arrogate it? His claim to sovereign thought on natural grounds is theologically naive, a naivete that becomes dangerous and noxious in modernity if you just look around at the adventures in abstraction and sovereign possession that this, I think, has wrought. We moderns have become accustomed to the Cartesian dichotomization of cogitatio and extensio which is historically patterned on the biblical sarx-pneuma, distinction, flesh and spirit. The Cartesian dichotomy brought this long-standing Platonic Pauline fault line into modern thought, modern science, modern ethical reasoning. And, for example, as already mentioned, Jared, by you, uh, it is definitive in Kant. So the Extensio-Cogitatio fault line produces a certain disfiguring schism that we cling to. Spinoza wanted to explode it and replace it with a monism, but was only partially successful because his thought retains the Cartesian categories in the new ontology. Virtually all other modern philosophers accept it like a fatality, even as they seek to transcend it. Kant, Hegel, Husserl, and others can be named. It's like a ruinous bad habit that we, we moderns just can't give up. <laughs> uh, we perpetuate it even as we rue it. <laughs> we, uh, we want to throw it off, but even so, the so-called postmodern philosophers perpetuate it in their efforts to throw it off. That's why Leahy uses the phrase beyond, beyond modernity, because all of this striving to get beyond modernity, as in Altizer, <laughs> it's perpetuating the very modernity it's striving to get beyond. So only getting beyond, beyond modernity, that's his phrase to say, it it has to be a new beginning. So this selfhood, uh, this cogitatio extensio schism that uh, is, uh, is the subjectivity and objectivity It's our Stockholm syndrome, if you will, in which the creative power of thought, the power of creative thought is hampered. Even 50 years of postmodernism hasn't been able to uh, be be freed of it. Um, And yet it is just a way of thinking. It's just a way of thinking that we've been stuck with for centuries, a a system of categorization that we seem to be incapable of breaking with. But what if we just imaginatively wipe it away and begin anew, creating a new world without it? Mm -hmm. That's the the task. Um, So the thinking now occurring vanishes all this. Platonic idealism, the Christian Sarks Panoima distinction, Cartesian dualism, the specific binarities of modern thinking in Kant, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Husserl. Um, There is a new beginning that brings that past thinking to an end. So beginning is the key. Absolute beginning is novelty. Hmm. Becoming is not. So now I would be shifting to this question of becoming. how to think about becoming today we function in an ontology that has lost being itself ipsum essay and is stuck with becoming that is not free it's loaded with baggage nietzsche celebrated becoming as exciting and promising and so did hegel but in late modernity we experience becoming as a spinning of the wheels (laughs) A constant flailing reiteration of the of the past, exhausting, lacking creative power. only beginning exercises freedom as becoming does not. And that's what this thinking is positing. So I'll pause there and see if you have another question.
0: What's interesting is the solution that Leahy seems to be working with to this, this attempt to overcome this Cartesian, uh, the kind of Cartesian chasm and this this modernist thinking is this development of a history of being that obviously uh, culminates in the thinking now occurring, which in some ways I think puts him in something of a historical lineage uh, in the sense I'm thinking of some names you've already uh, um, invoked so uh, you know, somebody like Hegel has this very progressivist narrative of history. I think I'm thinking in particular of Heidegger and his uh, notion of the history of being, in the way that he he kind of has this apocal history of of the way that phenomena manifest themselves. And it seems like Leahy is doing something like this, uh, particularly I think maybe more the Heideggerian than the than the Hegelian version. Uh, and yet it's it's it seems quite clear that he's not just Repeating heidegger, um, and so i I wonder if you could maybe for for our audience who probably is going to be more familiar with with Hegel and more familiar with Heidegger, if maybe we could help expi- explicate Leahy by pulling out the ways in which his project might have some resonances with you know, a Heideggerian history of being, but is also doing something importantly different, yes, uh,
2: these are all very important questions, really the questions that need to be asked. If you look at Leahy's works, uh, he addresses these thinkers um, as uh, segues, but uh, there's an absolute break uh, in the thinking now occurring with this this line of thinking. Um, notice that uh, Hegel and Heidegger are both thinkers of process, <laughs> of uh, you know there is a historical process, and you know, and and never mind that it's a free process. It's it's understood to be free. It's still um, drawing, tr- tracing a continuity in history. What's distinctive about the thinking now occurring is absolute discontinuity in history, and with history, an absolute break with history. Um, it's saying um, a little bit like the way a a, a rocket. Uh, launches um from the ground, but at a certain point, all of that ground equipment, um I don't know the technical details here, but the the rocket part of the of the uh, spaceship falls away, and um then there's this of uh, pre-floating, and it's a little bit like that's a weak analogy, but you 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 see the the. The line of thinking that's traced um, in Leahy's works, um, usually starting with Aristotle, he doesn't begin with Plato, interestingly enough. He's very much, uh, that's his Catholic heritage showing also this uh, grounding in Aristotle that he traces through Thomas Aquinas and uh, then through the modern thinkers, and he's um, Making use of this thinking, really like the the the, the, the rocket launch uh, on the ground. Um, but it, it, what hes what he's saying is this thinking. it's not that. It's not that. It's a absolute break with that because it's not on the way. Um, uh, it's a radical understanding that um, the universe is created now in actuality by the perceivers. Who are the perceivers? All of us. <clears throat> That's why polyontology. However many perceivers you have, so many universes interpenetrated, but di- but each distinctively different. And he doesn't talk much about uh, non-human perceivers, but I would argue that uh, you know even uh, the rabbit. Hopping across your backyard is a perceiver who has a universe. You know, there are a lot of arguments about whether animals have a world or don't have a world. But surely it has its perceptive universe, let's say, whatever that is. (laughs) Um, And uh, that, too, is a contributor to the co-creation of the universe. What is the point of this essential newness that's absolutely actual? It's saying The world begins now. And those nows are not strung together in a continuity, tracing something in history. No. (laughs) Each one begins now, uh, working with whatever thinking has to work within that now. Now, that might mean you have memories of the past, you have past perceptions through your body, of your universe, et cetera, et cetera. But all of this... um, is uh not determining the nature of the present creation and basically in this now there's a uh, going from 0 to 1 from uh, it's he calls it creatio ex abisso it's not ex nihilo because one of the the uh declarations of this thinking is that the body absolutely exists we we do not doubt the existence of the body It's almost like the body is uh, so impossible for thinking to uh, refuse that uh, it's simply a gift we cannot refuse. (laughs) Uh, And so it just acknowledges the, the, the body of the universe, the material existence of that body. But again, this is not a materialism because... Even what we speak of commonly as materialism is such a reductive notion of what actually matter. Matter is as great a mystery as anything that we think of as immaterial. How can these two mysteries even, they're not two mysteries, they are one. That is um, an essential claim of this thinking. I think the, the mystery of consciousness and the mystery of matter these two mysteries are one mystery (laughs) blown together in what he describes as a unicity. Now, um, just to say a little about unicity, uh, what that notion is establishing is um, that uh, the one and the infinite many both pertain. How does the one pertain qua the infinite many the infinitude the infinite polyontology <laughs> of of absolute particularity uh, absolute infinite universal particularity which means that um again the notion of a digitized universe to use that metaphor loosely and that um there there is a a unity of created by Absolute differentiation. If you think absolute differentiation through to the ground, what you have is a unicity. You might say united by the discontinuities of differentiation. (laughs) You get that idea? So in this sense, it it lays to rest its... I think it's trying to lay to rest uh, any notion of a dichotomy or paradox between the one and the many because Mm -hmm. um, they are reconciled in unicity.
1: Yeah, going beyond these uh, these dichotomies, uh, going beyond beyond these dichotomies rather uh, is uh, definitely a fascinating move uh, in this thinking. Uh, so, I want to I want to try and push this thinking a, a bit and maybe anticipate some of the uh, questions or or concerns that uh, may be arising for for people uh, with some of this language. So, uh, I'm sure how I'm about to to frame this is kind of stuck in in some of these. Uh, dichotomies of of modernity. So do feel free to to point out how these maybe don't don't pertain in in this thinking. Uh but uh, what's what's come up for me uh is Okay, this thinking is absolutely free, unconditional. Uh, this perceiving is absolutely free, unconditional. Yet at the same time, this is a, 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 a framework where it's absolute particularity. Uh, so how can the perception or, or thinking uh, that is is dealing with uh, such acute particularity at the same time be uh, free or unconditioned in how it is thinking and and perceiving uh, that particularity that seems to uh, imply some kind of a uh, tension. wouldn't that the particularity of what's perceived be a constraint or uh, a condition for for how it's perceived, how it is thought uh, how does this absolute uh, freedom pertain in in this way?
2: Yeah, that's again a really key question and hard to hard to articulate that answer um that um in the receiving of absolute particularity The receiving gives identity. And in that, um, there is a free reception. It, it, the reception of of uh, absolute particularity um, is a free reception. and um, it's it's a creative reception. It, creates the universe and you are responsible for the universe that you create because, um, just to give a a little example here, a stranger on the street makes a gesture that's ambiguous. And one person receives it as a menace and a threat. Another receives it as a cry for help or, um, a, um, Expression of distress. Um, That interpretation. um, It's a fact that this gesture was made. It's not a fact that this was a menacing gesture or that 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 this was a cry for help. It's not a fact. It's an it's a reception of that gesture. Qua, and that's our responsibility when we receive absolute particularity like i can receive um a um, tract of land with a beautiful wood on it let's say a beautiful um um, grove of trees Uh, let's say they're they're um old trees you know uh, it took a hundred or more years to grow and uh, i can receive that tract of land as a as an inheritance and see in it um wow, if I cut these trees down and sell them, think of the income. I can build a a luxury hotel here and make money off of it. Um, Or I can receive that tract and say, look at these zillions of lives before me, zillions and zillions of lives. The the trees themselves, the insects in the trees, the birds and the animals that live in the trees, the life that this gives, the just walking through it the 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 the, um, sense of of livingness of vitality that i feel when i walk through um who's right who's right here is there any answer to that question so when we perceive something we're always perceiving it um it's it's never neutral there's no neutrality this is like sartre you know there's no place of neutrality your reception of existence um your reception of the things themselves it's always um as this or that and you're responsible for that because you are creating the world by your reception perception of it does that answer the question somewhat you can Ask away if there's more.
1: Yeah, no, that definitely uh, makes uh, makes some. Um clarifications i think uh one one uh, uh sort of additional aspect i would like to touch on though uh this can seem very mental uh that uh okay this is all something that's uh kind of occurring uh you know, almost uh, like solipsistically or uh, in this kind of very idealist uh sort of way but that's obviously uh not uh, uh what he'd uh in, intend here with with this thinking uh and to collapse into again one of these uh sides of this uh, dichotomy inherited from uh, modernity. So in in what ways uh, yeah, is this not uh, merely some private mental or uh, solipsistic kind of uh, creative freedom here?
2: Good question. It's exactly the opposite. If you can think the opposite of solipsism, what would that look like? The exact opposite of solipsism? It's a great thought experiment, right? What would that look like? What would be some of the features?
1: Yeah, I guess uh, this absolute uh, objectivity uh, certainly uh, comes to mind here.
2: (laughs) And then um, absolute community, the community of all existences, the co-creativity of all existences, the infinitude of all existences, The validity, the uh, identity of all, the equal identity of all existences, each one absolutely different from the other, and therefore each one equal in absolute differentiation. Uh, So perfect justice in a sense, right? And, um, that's why, you know, I think there's a whole application here to environmental questions that Leahy himself has not explored. Again, Leahy just did his version of the thinking now occurring. Now I can do mine. you can do yours. And if you care about environmentalism or animals or uh, or aliens from outer space, uh, feel free, f- apply it, right? And, um I see here that um, there are you know one of the implications environmentally is this is a universe in which there are no sacrifice zones because the insistence is this is is a you might say a sacred body uh it's the sacred body of god <laughs> and the way that he writes about this theologically now we've been speaking more philosophically but we can shift to the theological dimensions the way he writes about this is um, the thinking of the first absolute. The first absolute would be this notion of God before creation. You know, that's an abstraction, right? Is there a God before creation? No. Uh, there's That's an abstraction. It's a falsification of the full fact of the actuality of the existence of the universe that this thinking uh, uh, witnesses to. It's, uh, in a sense, in the thinking, it's self-demonstrating. And so there is no first absolute. There's only the second absolute. (laughs) So what is that saying? The, The language Leahy uses for it is that God, this abstract God that was there before the beginning that Augustine himself says, There was never a time before creation, right? You can't go back in time and find a God before creation. That's absurd. And even Augustine's already insisting on that in the confession. So it's an abstraction working from what is here to thinking about God, the act of creation. And so the notion is the first absolute is transcended by the second absolute, the body itself god this empty notion of a <laughs> of something that was there before creation is emptied out completely and he even as a catholic talks about the triple nothingness of the trinity because that god is trans transcends as a triple personhood um and there are there is sense to those person categories that that's a another whole area of the thinking lahia develops um of these of the personhood of the Trinity, but in effect, they are emptied out as God, this trinitarian God transcends into existence. So we have this usual notion that God is transcendent and gives birth to the world, and that world is almost like a fall down into matter. This is a very platonic notion way of thinking about it. But the thinking now occurring uh, thinks God as creator transcends into existence, creating the second absolute, the body capital B itself, the actually existing universe. Now, does that mean then that God has pre-designed all of this universe and all of the elements in it and the identity of the things in it, it's already fixed and done? Like the the um, Calvinistic God that pre-writes all of history before it even begins, right? This notion of a predestination that pre-designs and pre-writes. This is um, rather the body exists, but those who receive it create its essential content. The The rabbit in the yard. (laughs) You know, you, me, thinking, receiving. Remember, the the thinking is, first of all, perceiving. So we're talking about seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. This is the thinking now occurring. Your very seeing, your most immediate perceptions of consciousness are the thinking now occurring. That's the foundation. That's the body. And then uh, within that body, there's all kinds of creating that, that you can be doing. Uh, but you're responsible for what you create. You're 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 a caretaker for this universe of yours that uh, you have been given uh, by this uh, second absolute, the body itself. Does that make sense? <laughs>
0: I, I think it does. And what I think is interesting is I think it also links way back to the beginning of the conversation. So when we, we first were asking some early questions, you know, Jared asked, uh, you know, how do we situate Leahy within radical theology and that tradition and what's his relationship there? And also what is, uh, you know, how do we situate him within his Catholicism? And it it sort of strikes me as you're going through this, the way in which, there is a radicalization of a very incarnational and I think particularly like Catholic notion of the sacredness of creation that is happening yes. here. Where yes. there's yes. it's 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 very like it's Eucharistic in some sense, but yes. it's it's okay. not it's not Orthodox Eucharist, it's not traditional Eucharist, it is right. this hyper radicalized to the point where you know it is um uh it is incarnational you know in some ways i think it's as incarnational as you find in the the famously canonic theologies you know i'm thinking of, of of somebody like Moltmann, for example but i think even even something as as radically canonic as altizer it seems like leahy is doing that 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 same kind of move where incarnation becomes all in all in this moment and so it's it is it is both deeply catholic and uh and, and deeply radical at the same time which
2: yeah here that's a great point and there's but there's a big difference uh, absolute difference actually between altizers uh uh kenotic uh final kenosis and Leahy's final kenosis that altizers final kenosis is a a revelation of absolute nothingness. And Leahy's thinking now occurring is a apocalyptic revelation now of the body itself as a absolute incarnation and absolute content. So if you can find a more intense and absolute opposition than absolute emptiness and absolute content I I really would like to hear that.
0: <laughs> and, and I think it's 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 telling the, you know, from a sort of dialectic perspective how in in many ways there is this this sense that there is there is something happening um similarly between these that there is some relationship here. Oh, there is. Uh, and and of course interpersonally they were two people who both respected each other very much and and wrote about each other's work. Uh, and yet it is it is that um that that radical discontinuity there, which I think at least one reading of this might be to suggest that absolute fullness and absolute nothingness, that there is something of a dialectical convergence, a a coincidentia oppositorum that happens with absolute nothingness and absolute fullness.
2: Well, you must know, Justin. um Altizer's obsession with Good Friday as the holiest day of the year, (laughs) because he he just loved the death of God as a religious idea. And it was his religion. It was his faith. Um, And uh, his understanding is the transcendent God dies and canonically empties himself of his substance into um the world but that because that world is a world of becoming of of vanishing and perishing it's a it's a world of essentially continually uh, he sees time and history as a kind of burning up of the substance of god that's empty and God out um and creating an absolute pervasive nothingness and and bringing god to an end okay and so Leahy's problem with Tom is not that that's wrong. Is it, Okay, good. Yeah, good. God's all burned up. And, it, you know, but where's the resurrection? <laughs> so Leahy's a thinker of Easter. You know, Altizer's a thinker, thinker of Good Friday. Um, and uh, they belong to each other the way East, Good Friday and Easter belong to each other. <laughs> and they're, in a sense, they're both thinkers of incarnation, but all ties are in the negative and Leahy in the positive.
0: That's great. That's really helpful. I I, I see that we, we are getting nearish time, so I want to pass the mic over here. Uh Jared, do you have a, a last question or two?
1: Yeah, I, let's uh let's maybe dwell on uh on this uh these Catholic elements a little bit and uh yeah some of the the reception of 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 Leahy um some of the critique uh that uh, I've seen so uh, in this wonderful volume uh you put together not only do you have scholars kind of uh overviewing and uh, uh giving uh, giving some voice to these various aspects of of this thinking of of Leahy's uh uh, philosophy and theology, uh, but also some some sort of critical remarks, and uh, one uh, one of those that I, I saw throughout. Uh this volume is well maybe maybe this thinking isn't so new maybe there's something uh sort of uh, very essentially christian in a way that uh maybe kind of exclusivist or 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 limiting uh so one of these is uh, hmm, no self i think i've heard of this in in buddhism before maybe they've already been up to some uh, essentially new thinking with that and uh yeah i mean uh could we have a a thinking now occurring that doesn't have these say very incarnational uh uh, aspects that are so Christian—is uh, uh, it possible to to participate in in this thinking uh, as a sort of paleontology from a, a Muslim perspective, like I would uh, be approaching this, or a Hindu perspective, a non-religious perspective, perhaps? So, yeah, could you speak to some of these uh, these critiques and uh, these possibilities here?
2: I think they're all um, not only um, really valid and uh, important uh, explorations. But there, the, of the essence, <laughs> that a Buddhist would come to this thinking and say, is that Buddhism? Can that be Buddhism? Uh, can that be transformed so that it remains the thinking now occurring, but qua Buddhist uh, style, uh, could it be uh, Uh, Jewish thinking? Could it be Muslim thinking? Could it be um, Vedantist thinking? And um, I think that's uh, just to be created. It's to be seen. It's to be, um, those explorations cannot be prejudged. They have to be seen because am I qualified to do all of that and make a statement about it now? Of course I am not. I'm not a specialist in any of these. Um, And so it has to be deep, Thinkers who absorb what this thinking is claiming and whether that pertains within this religious tradition as well, or better put, that this religious tradition as well, whether Buddhist, Muslim, uh, Vedantist, um, is actually on a path inductively toward the very same end point, which is a beginning point. Is it actually on the way itself to that? Um, and, uh, you know, there's no pre-existing answer to that without the work being done itself. And um, I'll be the first to invite everyone to that task of any tradition, secular, you name it. Um, I certainly think that um, the the claim is strong enough that this is a thinking now occurring, that it has its own logic that is... Um, like a, you know, it functions. The logic of this thinking functions like uh, the the omega point in uh, Teilhard de Chardin. It's it's not. There's nothing necessary. There's nothing necessitating this path. It's not a Hegelian necessity, forcing all of us to go here. It's far rather um, something about the world itself for th- for consciousness and consciousness for the world it it is an inevitable thought once you start seeing uh, the the um a a kind of absolutely creative pleroma uh that uh thinking and let's say um the world uh, the material world and thinking um (laughs) co-occupy Um, this creative realm that that is beyond uh, any fixed categories, that is constituted by change itself, um, and that is mercurial in the sense that from one minute to the next, there could be, you know, I, I've been looking at near-death experiences and these kinds of things lately, just as a kind of curiosity related to this. And overnight, the person with that, near-death experience experiences the universe in a radically transformed, even absolutely transformed perception. The perception of the world is phenomenologically totally transformed. Um, so I just want to go back to that Hamlet quote, "There are more things in heaven and earth that are in your than are in your philosophy. Uh, you you need you need to get beyond philosophy, to um, a more fluid, changeful, um, a kind of quickness of adjustment. Uh, what is it that Kierkegaard is always um, being trying in English? There's a word uh, nimbleness. This nimbleness, um, change happens in the blink of an eye. There's a now, and then there's a changed now, and then there's a changed now. Is there a necessary? Causal relation between one, two, and three? No. The claim is no. It's not a causal relationship. There's a blink of an eye. And that new universe is a new universe. And it can be perceived in a radically, absolutely different way, phenomenologically, from one moment to the next. And there's no necessary carrying of the baggage of the previous moment into this moment. Um and this is an absolute metanoia. Uh, meta meaning uh, change, and noya referring to noose or mind. Uh, it's a it's a change of mind that is adequate to the changing world, the 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 um the uh, changing reception perception of things. Uh, that's perfectly fluid, perfectly nimble, uh, perfectly adequate to changingness. Now, if you have a philosophy that refuses change and, see, and insists on um, certain categories or, you know, um, it's not going to be comfortable with this thinking. Uh, but Leahy insisted that, he, that Catholicism is not adequate to this thinking either. So uh, Catholicism doesn't have any natural advantage as compared with any other tradition for uh, doing this thinking, accepting this thinking, becoming nimble in this thinking. Um, because um, it has all its own disadvantages, <laughs> um, not being able, being in frozen categories, having conservative views and uh, uh, attachments to certain notions uh, that re- would refuse this thinking as, uh, as uh, just too over the edge, you know, just plunging into uncontrollable uh, creative pleroma, you might say. Um, and this Pleroma is so infinite and so unlimited, and so the opposite of any containment like the Hegelian containment, the way Hegel's God always fully contains um, the universe. Uh, um, this is an, a, 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 an explosion, an ontological explosion outward that um, into an absolute freedom that um, cannot be limited, cannot be contained, cannot be frozen, forced not to change, <laughs> um, and that is um, the key to understanding it. And and another way to articulate this is: it's the Godhead itself. It's the Godhead itself. We are plunged into the Godhead itself. Um, in this, it, it, that's what the second absolute is saying. Um, This creative freedom, this unconstraint, this um, capacity to receive the world as absolute newness um, is occurring in the Godhead itself, inside. But that inside is an exteriority because there's no limit to it. It's an absolute exteriority, if if you're going to use that language. It's an absolute objectivity. It's not something in God. It's far rather that God has transcended any um, any uh, containment into an absolutely open, free, uh, objective place of creation.
0: I, I feel like we need an amen at this point. <laughs> um, recognizing that we're getting close on time, um, We we opened by mostly talking about Ah, uh, the difficulty of Leahy's work, right? He's a famously difficult writer. Uh, his books are very complex. He uses a lot of original terminology that he coins himself. So, given all of this, um, I wonder if you could suggest any any helpful strategies for people who are looking for an accessible or at least somewhat accessible entry into uh, Leahy's thought.
2: Yes, certainly. For the vocabulary, I couldn't agree more that he is getting familiarized with these terms and as Jared said, um, they are free phrase- often there are phrases that you have to recognize you know, you kind of put dashes between you figure out where do the dashes go that this is actually a a, a phrase that uh, I have to understand as a phrase um and um, um, and these key terms that are distinctive to the thinking now occurring um, because there are many terms used that are just, used in the way that modern or contemporary philosophy uses them, no special invocation with that term. But there are distinctive words used in a to define the thinking now occurring distinctively as such that you need to get familiarized with. And for that, I suggest um, in the volume that you uh, referred to, Jared, the um, DG Leahy and the Thinking Now Occurring co-edited by me and Elliot Wolfson and published in two, uh, 20, 2021. Um, there's a glossary in the back and that glossary can be helpful for getting those key terms and getting an initial handle on what they mean. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work to be done to get the full uh, sense of those terms, but it, it would give an initial grasp that allows you to then go to say, the Leahy interviews that Justin referred to, there are these um, three two more or less two hour interviews done by Todd Carter of David Leahy a few months before his death that are posted, those links are posted on the DG Leahy Wikipedia article. So if you look up DG Leahy Wikipedia, um, you can find those links and watch these uh, interviews and using the glossary and using that um, those interviews might be a very good beginning point. Um, the volume itself might be a good beginning point. I wrote the introduction to that with the intention of helping people, including an initial Q&A that answers some of the really basic questions like, what is distinctive about this thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, why does the word absolute come up on every page? You know, just like really. Um, it's called the a quick start guide to the thinking now occurring. <laughs> so I was really thinking of it almost like a techni- a technical quick start guide like you need when you have a new piece of technical equipment and you, you need, oh God, I can't read that 40 page manual. I just need the two or three page job that tells me where to plug it in, press this button. <laughs> so I was trying to, to think that way to, to make it more accessible in the introduction. And then um, as far as his trying to go to read his works, uh, the most accessible of the four books is Faith and Philosophy. It's the most sort of traditionally uh, expository treatment of the thinkers. Um, And then there's a mind-blowing appendix to the volume that's where the thinking now occurring really uh, asserts itself. So you can begin again with Aristotle and go through... Uh, the figures there: Thomas Aquinas. I think Leibniz is in there. Hegel, uh, Kant, uh, Heidegger. You know, you've got you've got all these thinkers as segues. So he's continually writing about these thinkers made this contribution to perception of existence, um, and and this series of of perceptions is what leads to this free induction into. Uh, the new thinking. It's again. It's not. And it's not necessitated. Um, you can refuse it. You're very, very uh, free to refuse it. <laughs> um, but in a way, that's not getting with the program. Is the idea that you, you know, to see the depths of the program, you have to um, recognize that. Uh, this uh history of this this um perception of the history of being that occurs in western philosophy is inducting us into some um new kind of thinking that is it, it's it's not that it's inevitable it's that it's um it com- it's um absolutely compelling once you see it once you feel it once you get it um you can't go back you can't uh, not see it anymore, <laughs> and um that in that sense the precisely because it's an absolutely new beginning, it's an ending. It's only the new beginningness of it, the absolutely essentially new beginningness of it that brings all of that history to an end, okay, But all of that history had to happen again, like the the rocket on the ground had to happen to make this possible to to uh, to perceive. Uh, beyond that, you know, the most difficult book is Foundation. Um, and so the order of difficulty of these four books, I would say is, uh, uh, easiest is Faith and Philosophy, most accessible. Then um, Beyond Sovereignty, which treats, it's an it's his Ethics, which treats uh, uh, the main figures he's in conversation with are Agamben and Badiou. Then, Third most difficult is um, Novitas Mundi, which is his first book. And most difficult of all is Foundation, but that's where the really hard work is done uh, in terms of developing what he calls the trinary logic um, that really gives a logical foundation to these claims. And um, that's a whole other realm. If you want to get started on the logic, I suggest um, reading. Uh, the glossary term about the trinary logic, and then going to those pages in Foundation that lay it out.
0: Awesome, that's very helpful, and I liked uh, you. You referred to um, an induction into the thinking now occurring, and I I, I do feel like there is there is something. Uh, initiatory about uh, Leahy's work and and the, in many ways I think the the difficulty is part of that initiatory process uh, yeah. uh, where you you seek that moment like you had uh, Lisa where where all of a sudden the text opens itself up to you. Um, uh, so perhaps you have you have passed through that initiation and hopefully the rest of us can follow in your in oh, your no, step.
2: <laughs> Oh no the initiation is always now it, you <laughs> notice that initiation has in it initial? And that that's about beginning. So the beginning is always now. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't think there's any any better words uh, in which to uh, close out our time. So uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us and helping open up uh, Leahy's work to a broader audience.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to speak about it.